John chapter 20 features the empty tomb. The resurrection of Jesus is the capstone of the good news. And there's a subtle statement in the first verse that you've likely passed right by. Why haven't you noticed it? Well, it's because you're not from around there. And today, we'll take a closer look at a cultural moray that's no longer understood without being said. Welcome to episode 25, The Fulfillment of First Fruits. Well, welcome back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. This is Greg Hall. I've got the lava lamp warming up, and this week I've added a major award to my podcast studio. It is a miniature replica of the leg lamp from the movie A Christmas Story. It was my sister's, and I've carefully moved it into the window for this Christmas season. I'll post some pictures on my social media accounts so you can enjoy it as well. Well, a few weeks ago, we launched the All America Listener Challenge, and all of the updates on our progress are available at RethinkingScripture.com. In the month of November, we added listeners in 14 new cities, two new states, and three new countries, and that is outstanding. The Listener Challenge is going to continue. We have not filled up the map yet, and our goal is to have listeners from all 50 states. So keep spreading the word. Well, like I said in the opening, this week we're in John chapter 20, and it's John's version of the resurrection. And let me just say that the resurrection is the capstone of the good news. Nothing else we have studied in this book means anything if the events of chapter 20 are not a part of the story. It is not good news without the resurrection. There is no gospel. But it's not just Jesus's ministry that pointed to this event. It's all of Scripture that has pointed to this event. The story started back in the early chapters of Genesis with the first Adam, one who tends the garden, calling his bride woman. It was that Adam that led humanity to the defilement of death. And the rest of the Old Testament is the story of God's redemption of that situation. And as a result of that redemption, the new Adam appeared. Also, being mistaken for a gardener, released from the grave, And he talked to Mary, and he called her woman, just like the first Adam. And the theological bookend is complete. This is the capstone of the whole story. I I don't mean to oversell it, but there's really no way to oversell this. It's the whole reason I do what I do. This story has changed the world, and it has changed my life. And a scene like this that we read about in John chapter 20 is really bigger than itself. Being the capstone of the story, it ties together many other stories that have led up to it. And we'll see references painted to the background of this chapter that invite you to understand previous stories in terms of what is happening here. We'll get into that in just a minute. But before we do, I'd like to talk about cultural mores. A moray is a thing within the culture, any culture, that just kind of goes without being said. We have them in our culture. They're the accepted behavior and thought processes that come out of a culture. What are some of ours today? Well, my guess is no matter where I am in the country, as I go into an elevator, there's a certain etiquette that is kind of understood within an elevator. What are some of those things? You know what they are. Which way do you stand in an elevator? Well, you always face the doors. 
That's the cultural moray. Have you ever been in an elevator where somebody came in, stood with the doors to their back, and just looked at everybody? How awkward is that? And sometimes it's not even really acceptable to really say anything or even look at people in the eyes in an elevator. I don't know why that is, but that's just the way it is. And when people go outside those bounds, there's something within the culture that says that's not quite the normal way of acting. Lisa and I live in the great Northwest. We're Oregonians, and we are proud when it rains, which means we're proud a lot. (laughs) We have glorious summers. But when the fall comes and the rains start back again, if you're a true Oregonian, you really are never using an umbrella. I mean, you might pull one out for a funeral or a wedding, but in everyday life, you just put up with it. So if you're walking down the street in my hometown and there's somebody using an umbrella, the logical conclusion is, well, they're not from around here, are they? So it's really important that we understand that we have our own cultural mores. And it is also crucial to understand that there were mores in first century Israel things that went without being said in that culture. There's a book that I've used in my Bible survey classes when I teach as a supplemental text. The book is called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, Removing Cultural Blinders to Better Understand the Bible. And it's a great book, no matter what age or what stage of life you're in. The two authors, Randolph Richards and Brandon O'Brien, do a great job of introducing the topic of mores in the very first chapter. I'd like to share just a little bit today. This from their book published in 2012. They start out this way. Webster's Dictionary defines moray as folkways of central importance accepted without question and embodying the fundamental moral views of a group. And they say a couple phrases from that definition are worth pointing out. First, mores are accepted without question. That is, they are views a community considers closed to debate. People don't think about them as closed to debate. They just simply don't think about them at all. They go without being said. This is because mores are taught to us while we are children and before we can reason them out. The definition of mores also notes that they embody the fundamental moral views of a group. Observing these conventions is considered essential in the ongoing well-being of the community. Break them and chaos could reign. And breaking away from Richards and O'Brien, you can probably think of a few mores that maybe you had in your family growing up. Well, that's just a small culture, isn't it? What are the things that went without being said in your family? Maybe they still do. Maybe you've continued them from your childhood into maybe a family that you've started. And you might be thinking, you know what? Things aren't quite the same as they used to be. Some of the things that were normal back when I was little, they're different now. And Richards and O'Brien in Misreading Scripture point that out. And it's really interesting because when morals change over time, that causes what is commonly called a generation gap. So I'm not sure how old you are listening to me today, but odds are you've been in a conversation at some point where you've said, well, that's not the way it used to be. All those conversations you've had with someone either older or younger where someone says, back in my day, 
And then they explain some circumstance that is no longer the same as it was back then. That's the changing of a moray. For instance, when I was in first grade, I walked about a half mile to my elementary school. And it wasn't uphill and it wasn't in the snow both ways. Sometimes I was with friends when I walked, but often I was by myself in the first grade. My mom sent me out the door, wished me well, and then shut the door behind me. And all I can say is that was normal. But then I grew up and I had kids of my own. And I still live in the same small town in which I grew up. And that would never happen today. (laughs) 20 years ago, my kids never walked to school on their own. And today with the pandemic, do kids even go to school anymore? Things have really changed. Cultural mores have moved. And when that happens, it creates a generation gap. But there are some cultural norms that are slow to change. And to be sure, cultural shifts in biblical times moved much more slowly than they do today. And it's a cultural norm, a moray, that comes into play at the beginning of John chapter 20. There are things in the text that are hinted at, but not directly mentioned, because they don't have to be directly mentioned, because they went without being said in the original context. Well, the problem is that went without being said back then. And what goes without being said now in our culture, that's completely different. And in fact, here in the very first verse is where we start. There's something stated in verse one of chapter 20 that just went without being said. It's hinted towards, but if you're not aware, you might have just skipped right over it. So in John chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And it's those first words of the chapter that hint towards something that we'd like to focus on today. Those words are now on the first day of the week. And in our culture, what does that mean? Well, the first day of the week, we understand that as Sunday. We might think of church when we think of Sunday. We might think of resting on a day like Sunday. We might. Those are all things from our culture, though. What would an original reader of John's text thought when he read those words? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that an original reader would have been taken back in their mind, maybe even subconsciously, to Leviticus chapter 23, It's in Leviticus chapter 23 that the laws of the Israelite religious festivals are outlined. There are seven festivals that God handed down to Moses that he expected his people to put on the calendar every year, just like in America where we have our holidays and everybody in our culture understands when Thanksgiving is, that Christmas is coming up, and then New Year's shortly follows. In biblical times, these seven holidays outlined in Leviticus 23 had a very similar feel. But probably even more importantly, they had a religious aspect to them. Not all of our holidays do that. The first holiday outlined in Leviticus 23 verse 5 is the holiday of Passover. And we in our modern day context have come to understand that as associated with Good Friday. 
Sometimes there are evangelical groups that have some sort of a Seder meal where they go through the process of a Seder meal that recognizes some symbolism that might point to Christ. But largely, we've just turned that Passover festival, because of what Jesus did on that day, into our own religious calendar event. Passover was technically on the 14th day of the 12th month on the Jewish calendar. And then on the 15th day, the very next day, there was another festival that started. It was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it was a seven-day feast. Both of these festivals go back into Jewish history, and they reflect a time when the Israelites were brought out of slavery from Egypt. And so God suggested to Moses, why don't you put these on your calendar every year so that you remember how it is that I've interacted with you and how I've been faithful for you and with you along the way. Those are two religious festivals that happen rapidly, one right after the other. And then there's also a third one. And this is not as well known in our culture, but in their culture, it went without being said that the day after the Sabbath, following Passover, was another religious holiday. Well, when is the day after the Sabbath? It's the first day of the week. Let me just read to you out of Leviticus 23 verses 10 and 11. It says this, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land, which I am going to give to you, and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest to the priest. He, the priest, shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So in the Jewish culture, the day after the Sabbath following Passover was first fruits. It went without being said. And interestingly enough, in Jesus's first coming, he interacted with each of these feasts. He died on Passover, a festival that had been practiced and observed for centuries. That's the day Jesus died. He was in the grave on the first day of unleavened bread. And interestingly enough, the New Testament refers to sin as leaven in the way it infects everything, and the way it grows. And Jesus, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, as the only unleavened bread of life, was in the grave. And in rapid succession, he rose again, not on Easter, that's what we call it, he rose again on firstfruits. And John gives a nod to that Leviticus understanding of firstfruits, now on the first day of the week. If you go into Matthew, he writes it this way. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Matthew gives a nod to first fruits as well. When it comes to Mark, he says when the Sabbath was over. Well, when the Sabbath is over, it's the first day of the week. And Luke in his gospel says it this way. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing spices. All four gospel writers hint towards what went without being said in the Jewish culture. If they're going to the grave the morning after the Sabbath, following Passover, that is the morning of first fruits. So, what's the idea of first fruits in the Old Testament concept? Because maybe that's not clear to you. When they entered the land, unlike when they traveled in the wilderness for 40 years, they would start to have crops that they could grow. And when the harvest time came for those crops, the idea was that they had identified a portion, a corner of their crop, of their field, that they would harvest first, before the rest of the harvest. 
and they would cut that and they would bring it to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, let me just ask you a question. Who else in the world, then or now, cuts a small portion of their field when it's ready to be harvested and then leaves the rest in the field and jets out of town? Nobody does that. But that's what God wanted the Jews to do. And it was a type of contract that God had with them. What he was saying was, you need to understand that I'm the one that waters that crop, I'm the reason it grows, and I will protect the rest of the harvest as you come and worship me. The people would come to Jerusalem for Passover, and they would usually stay a week celebrating these three feasts while their crops were ready to be harvested back home. That was the cultural norm. And here in John chapter 20, verse 1, now on the first day of the week, everyone that originally read this gospel that was from that culture would have automatically understood what day it was. It's kind of like me saying, you know, I had some friends over on July 3rd, and they stayed over, and the next day we had a big barbecue, and they stayed until late into the evening. Well, I hinted towards something there, but something went without being said. And most people in our culture would understand, oh, you had some friends over and they stayed over for the 4th of July. They wanted to see maybe some fireworks. And that goes without being said in our culture that the 4th of July is an important day on our calendar. And the same thing holds true for this very first statement in John chapter 20. Now it was the first day of the week. So what would have been happening that first day of the week? Well, early in the morning, on the first day of the week, first fruits, the priests would have already been gathered at the temple, presenting the first fruits offering for the nation. They would have cut barley out of the field the night before that they grew, carefully exposed the barley kernels, milled the grain into fine flour, mixed it with oil and frankincense. And that morning, the offering for the nation was presented first. And then also individual family representatives would have been making their way from all over the city to the Temple Mount with their offerings. As Mary traveled from Bethany over the Mount of Olives, down through the Kidron Valley, she would have passed right by the Temple Mount. She would have intermingled with people already making their way to the temple with their first fruit offerings. But these were the people observing a shadow ministry. And what do I mean by that? Later in the Bible, Paul lets us in on some theology that lets us know that what Jesus accomplished that day on first fruits was actually the fulfillment of that idea. If you hop over to 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to start in verse 12. Now, Paul is talking to specifically a group called the Gnostics, who had been teaching that the physical body was evil, and that while a person's soul would live on for eternity, the physical body would not be raised from the dead. That's what the Gnostics were teaching. And in this passage, Paul teaches against that Gnostic heresy. Let's read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say— that there is no resurrection from the dead. But if there is no resurrection from the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is also in vain. 
Moreover, Paul says, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And we, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And then Paul says something most extraordinary. Verse 20, he says this, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that, those who are Christ at his coming. What Paul has done here is extraordinary. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he has taken the idea of first fruits that's been a cultural moray for the Jews for centuries. They know what it means in their culture for the first part of the harvest to come in as a guarantee that the rest of the harvest will also come in. And what Paul does is he takes this event that happens on first fruits, the resurrection from the dead, the first one, and he says, Christ is our first fruits of the resurrection. And it is that first fruits that is a guarantee that the rest of the harvest will come in at his second coming. Now, my guess is you've read the Paul passage before. You may have heard a sermon on it. You've understood Christ is the first fruits. But outside of the culture, if you don't know what went without being said about first fruits from that first century culture, Paul's statement has probably meant nothing to you. And for Paul, it's important that he present Christ as the fulfillment of not just the Passover lamb or the idea of the unleavened bread festival, but also this idea that he has fulfilled first fruits as well. And why is that important? It's because of something Jesus said in his ministry. He has condemned the current temple that was in place at that time. He predicted that it would disappear, and within a generation, it did disappear. And there was a whole culture of people so ingrained within these religious festivals that without a temple, they would have been lost without some different way of framing the understanding of those festivals. And Paul is giving them the permission. He is guiding them to the fulfillment of these festivals. So when the temple disappears, people aren't lost, but they know how the concept is fulfilled in Christ. And while we're at it, there's one more moray in this chapter that I'd like to point out. Mary becomes the first eyewitness of the resurrection. She's a woman. And women were not allowed to testify in court because they were not considered reliable enough in that culture. That was a cultural moray of their day. And if somebody were making this story up in the original culture that it was in and expected people to actually believe it, they would have never had Mary be the initial witness. 
the story just wouldn't have been put together that way if it hadn't actually happened that way. And so we can see that Jesus is not just changing the cultural mores around the festivals, but he's also beginning to challenge the mores within the culture about the roles that men and women played. We see that play out throughout the New Testament. It's this event, this capstone event, that causes a generation gap in Jesus's culture. It's this event that years later, people would say, well, we used to go to the temple. We used to walk uphill both ways to the temple with our first fruits offering. And the little kids are growing up with a totally different culture, understanding that Christ is the fulfillment. I love thinking about Jesus as the creator of a generation gap. There's one more aspect of John chapter 20 that I'd like to point out before we close today. John describes a foot race between himself and Peter to the grave that morning. And when they arrived, they both ended up going in. They saw the linen wrappings lying there. Then it says this, verse 9, For as of yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. I would just challenge you to think, what was the scripture when this was originally written? Well, when John wrote this, the scripture was the Old Testament. And if that's the way we're supposed to read that statement, for they did not yet understand the Old Testament, that he must rise again from the dead, it makes you ask the question, where in the Old Testament is the prediction of Jesus rising from the dead? One of my professors, Dr. Warren Gage, has unpacked this idea in several of his works. And I'm excited to say In the next two episodes, we get to hear directly from Dr. Gage. He'll be my very first guest on the podcast, and he is going to be the one that walks us through chapter 21. I'm really excited for the next two episodes. It will round out our study of the scripture. And it's Dr. Gage that has done a full study of the Old Testament based on some statements that are made in Luke chapter 24. You might remember Jesus traveling with some disciples after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus. That's what we see in Luke chapter 24. He travels with them, and when they finally recognize that it's actually Jesus that's walking with them, the scripture says that Jesus did this. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them, the disciples he was walking with, the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And so what Dr. Gage has done in many of his works is he's gone back into that Old Testament and he has identified several stories that are a pre-telling, a foreshadowing of Jesus's capstone event. And it may be some of those stories that John and Peter were remembering as they stood there that day and saw the grave clothes in the tomb. Well, that's all I've got for today. And if you're enjoying the content, you can help others find the podcast by giving it a five-star rating. It's those reviews and those star ratings that really encourage new listeners to give the podcast a try. The next episode will be the beginning of the end for the book of John. It's chapter 21, the last chapter. And to celebrate the end of this book study, we will be welcoming 
our very first guest. I've already let it out of the bag. My former professor and good friend, Dr. Warren Gage. He'll join us to share his thoughts about the end of this gospel, and it will be a two-episode finale. We're going to give a proper end to this great book. Again, thanks for listening, and please take some time to rate, review, and recommend to your friends the Rethinking Scripture podcast. Mm -hmm.